0: I'd like to welcome Jeff Browning to Eminence Podcast. This is the second part of an uh, interview we had earlier. If you didn't get to listen to the first part, please do. Uh, we talked about Jeff's uh, dabbling into a running ultra and so many other things. Uh, one of the things came out of there, talk about the diet. Uh, Jeff is big into diet, uh, keto diets, and I'm always interested to listen to that as I'm training for Lake Martin 100. Because last time when I ran Lake Martin, I had to stop heart injuries and I'm always suffering because uh, I'm not eating properly. And Jeff, uh, let's talk about the keto diet, the diet that helped you to change your running. You talked about that in previous section of this podcast. Let's talk about it that.
1: You know, in late 2015, I, I was kind of on a whole foods organic diet. I've been kind of a high carb athlete for about 15 years and I wasn't eating a bunch of processed food. I definitely was eating a pretty high carb diet and You know, I hit my mid 40s and I just wasn't thriving anymore. I wasn't recovering like I used to. I was starting to like running 100 mile races, but I was getting such an inflammatory response after the race. It was really hard on me for about a week. I'd even mentioned to my wife might be about time to retire from actively racing hundreds and trying to race so hard until I came across um, I was having some health issues um, in late 2000 or in 2015 we think it, you know, it was candida, which was like yeast in the GI tr- track. And after some international travel and, and drinking some questionable water and some other things, you know, that's the only thing I can point to that might've triggered it. But I just was not, I was ha- definitely having some issues and I kept having a rash and a flare up. And I, I, I'd gone to a naturopath and I'd gone and kind of gotten some tests done and I had, I wasn't really figuring anything out. and it, And it drove me to do some Dietary research in late 2015, December of 2015, and I I spent about a, a about a week, 25 30 hours with the research, just looking into anti Candida diets, and um, I kept coming across well, Candida is yeast, and yeast feeds on sugar, mm-hmm. so I kept coming across high fat, low carb, keto, and paleo forums that were talking about well, don't you you can't feed the yeast, so you know, I pushed away from the table and I looked at my wife and I said, "I think I need to kind of do a paleo diet." And she, she was like, "Well, I have two paleo cookbooks." And uh, she'd been wanting to do it for a few years, and I had kind of resisted because I needed my carbohydrates and because I was an endurance athlete, I needed my carbs.
0: That's natural, and, uh, <laughs> Yeah,
1: I'm not to give up my carbs. I immediately called Zach Bitter, who's a friend of mine and was a teammate at Ultra. He gave me some tips and then he put me in contact with Peter Defty at Vespa and we started chatting about optimized fat metabolism and OFM, which is using a ketogenic diet initially to get fat adapted and and really go low carb. So I went really low carb keto for probably about a month and a half, probably 10, 12 weeks actually, where I went pretty strict. That cleared up the candida issues. Like I was the rashes and everything cleared up, put it in remission. And then I also, you know, started doing some reading on fat adaptation and optimized fat metabolism and started talking to Peter and that really kind of opened the door for me to start manipulating my lifestyle diet to help with performance. What I found was, especially as a masters athlete at the time, I think I was 44 years old at the time, I was having trouble getting down to race weight. You know, I gained weight easier in the off season or in lower volume blocks of training. Um, I'd have trouble getting down to my original weight I used to be able to get down to in my 20s and 30s um, when I'd race. So I found that I lost eight pounds on uh, on doing it, and I got leaner than I'd been in 20 years. Um, <laughs> even ultra running, I never was that lean, and, and that leaned me up. I also was able to start doing two to three hour runs, no calories. Just some salt and water or electrolytes and water and, and started playing around with that diet for, for a while and raced Hurt 100 in Hawaii in 2016, about seven weeks into that adaptation phase of like going pretty low carb. And then I brought back strategic carbs around my workouts and strategically on long run days, brought back simple carbohydrate IV drip of calories, but less per hour. So I used to do push about 300 calories an hour during racing, and I was able to go down to less than 200 calories an hour to race on and not have any lows, not bonk. I kind of quit bonking altogether. You know, I don't think I've had a major bonk since then, except for something like Western States last year where I blew up my quads. That was more being stupid and racing too fast early and getting caught up in the race. But, but point being that I really saw a a benefit, not only in, not having, bonk, kind of becoming bonk proof and, and using less calories per hour, which equals less GI stress, less upset stomach, no pit stops anymore, you know, multiple pit stops during a hundred, those kind of things kind of cleared up. The other thing I, I kind of found was, and Zach Bitter had emailed me right before, or right before Hurt 100, with my first hundred on it on OFM. And he said, get ready for the recovery. It's going to kind of blow your mind. Mm. And I kind of was like, well, yeah. Well, I didn't really believe, you know. And I was just like, okay, whatever. As soon as I got done racing, I like the difference. I had twenty two hundreds under my belt when I did this, so I had finished 2200s. So I had, I knew what I felt like after a hundred, and I just didn't have the swelling, the inflammation. I didn't have any of the the typical symptoms that I associated with hundred milers. Post hundred milers that just went along with the territory. Like I just thought it was part of running hundred milers. What I realized was there's something else there. And because I didn't have quite, I didn't have as much swell. I had some micro swelling, but I didn't have crazy swelling in my ankles and knees like I in, like I normally did. I wasn't inflamed as in the face. Like I always had some puffiness in my face. I kind of had a little brain fog for a week um, after the hundred miler. Um, and I didn't have any of that. I was doing 72 hours after the race, I was doing air squats wow. and burpees. At the post-race awards, so I finished racing on like Sunday morning at like 3.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And the awards are Monday night. So that would be, what, less than 48 hours later. So I guess less than 48 hours after finishing, I was doing air squats and, and burpees because I was just <laughs> freaking out. I was just like, I can't, Like I've never felt like this after 100 before. Like I'm not, I'm hardly swollen. I'm hardly even sore, and I've done twenty <laughs> of downhill, you know, in a technical course. Because I mean, it was a it was a pretty competitive year that year. We had a dry year. Gary Robbins was the kind of defending course record holder. Was there? Um, Yasin DeBoone was there. Avery Collins was there. So we had a pretty good contingent of good runners, men runners in in the men's field, and um, I just kind of felt great, took the lead at mile 27 and never looked back, just felt amazing. And I I was hooked. After that, I was like, oh my gosh, the recovery after this, (laughs) I felt like I was 20 years younger. And so the inflammatory response, and I've seen that after coaching it, you know, I've coached, you know, probably a hundred athletes at this point to do this. And a lot of it's, you know, older runners who are like 40s, 50s, even 60s that I've coached who have like... You know, they get to that point where they're like, man, I just don't recover like I used to. And then all of a sudden they go through this whole OFM protocol and and then they go to their first race and they get done and they're, oh my gosh, they're like, I've never felt like this. Like I'm recovering so fast. So that was a huge kind of push for me to stay on it too. I did find in the first couple of years, I, if, I, if I strayed, to, a good thing for me, I, if I strayed too far with too many carbs, I would have that flare up with the candida. So it kept me, it kind of kept me on the straight and narrow, but it kept me on the straight and narrow long enough that I haven't had a major flare up in a long time, but I just feel so good on it that I just don't, I don't want to go back to the old way. That's the testament of this. You know, there's a lot of people out there will say, oh, there's nothing to this. There's no science to it or whatever. I mean, we do have some science to it now. Now I would argue that some of the science, the way they design the, the studies aren't really appropriate to how we do it. But the elite race walker study especially, um, I would argue, wasn't done right in the way we personally do it. All the athletes I know that I coach, all the athletes I know that do it, like Zach Bitter and uh, another good OFM athlete is uh, Nick Curry, who just got the American record on the track for 24 hours. He's another OFM athlete. We definitely strategically bring in carbs during the big blocks of training and strategic and still use carbs on our long runs and races. We are not ketogenic all the time, hundred twenty-four seven. So again, I'll emphasize that we are not ketogenic twenty-four-seven. We use it strategically here and there as a tool. So, you know, I, I think that's that was the biggest aha moment for me. That was just so just the recovery was amazing on it. I felt good on it. It was easy to maintain a good, healthy, lean body weight. And I feel great on it. I have great muscle tone, you know, muscle mass. I don't lose my muscle mass, you know, I'm fifty years old and I still have good muscle tone and you know, and that's one thing you really fight as you age is you lose your muscle. You know, we cannibalize muscle and, and our muscle protein synthesis slows down at the age of 35. And we, we lose on average about a pound of muscle a year after the age of 35. So even if we maintain the same body weight, we are losing muscle mass, which means we're getting fatter as runners. So keeping muscle and building muscle and having lean muscle weight is a really important thing for strength to weight ratio as a runner. Definitely. So talk
0: about uh, your diet, the way you apply. Tell us about in context of um, like when you ran a blood rock here, uh, how did you manage it? How many hours did you run this time? Twenty-two thirty-five. It was a tough course. I, I ran 35 miles of, of that course and was, you did it three times. But, um, but tell us about uh, when you ran 100 mile, like hard 100 mile, like uh, blood rock or you, you know you, you run other bigger races tell us about how do you manage those and you, for for a hundred mile or...
1: for me i i use iv drip of carb calories i use goo roctane in a bottle one scoop so 125 calories between every aid station and then i carry a few strategic gels i i use here and there i eat a little, little fruit at the tables maybe a little broth at night um i keep it pretty simple I do use some electrolyte tabs, like Succeed caps. I use those per half liter. So I take a pill every half liter that I consume of liquid. I'm going on about 180 to 200 calories an hour most of the time. And then, like I said before, about 600 to 800 milligrams of sodium per liter of drink rate. Or you could look at it per half liter of drink rate, three to four milligrams of sodium per uh, half liter. So that's kind of my protocol in races. As far as everyday diet, um, which most people are asking me a lot of questions about everyday diet. Most of the time, I intermittent carb fast in the mornings. I work out at lunch most of the time during the midweek. My midweek runs are lunch runs, so I don't run until about 11 or 12 um, every day. So in the mornings, I usually have coffee with a little heavy whipping cream, probably three eggs cooked in butter. Then I sip on some electrolyte drink that morning, a product called Element, L-M-N-T. It's just sodium, potassium, and magnesium. Um, with a little bit of stevia for sweetener and taste for different flavors. And I usually just drink that throughout the morning as I kind of two fist coffee. I work out at lunch and then I eat my first full meal like carbs, which would be carbs and protein after that workout. So about two o'clock in the afternoon. So I, I haven't had any carbs since the night before when I go into that workout. Unless I'm doing speed work, I might eat like a a piece of fruit, like a banana or something, you know, an hour before a hard workout, if I was going to do speed work. Like yesterday, for example, I did a big hill workout, um, at lunch and I had a banana about an hour before. Um, and I'll take a Vespa, um, CB 25 before a hard workout like that. Um, which helps some fat oxidation as well. And then just kind of drink a little yesterday, I didn't even take anything with me for a two-hour workout. And it's it's cool enough here right now in the winter that I didn't even carry water or electrolytes or anything for that two-hour workout. But then I'll eat, you know, like salad and meat for lunch. Sometimes, you know, then I'll have maybe some fruit too with it because I've just had a workout, so I top off glycogen. Um, and then evenings are usually kind of low. It, it, sometimes it's – I usually – My wife does a thing called um, fuel separation method, which is letting proteins a constant, but depending on the protein source, it drives the pairing of carbohydrate or fat. So if you have a fatty protein like hamburger, steak, something like that has naturally high fat in it, then we we do a low carb side Mm. with it. But if we had, you know, say a lean protein like skinless chicken breast or tuna or something like that then we would have more carbs with it, like potatoes, sweet potato, or something like that. And then low carb, like some kind of a a veggie side too. So pretty much always a veggie side with my meals, my lunch and dinner meals. I always have veggies and meat, but sometimes I'm strategically adding fruit or sometimes I'm strategically adding starches like potatoes for my carbs. Depending on how hard the workout was that day, you know, if I did a speed workout, there'd be more carbs that day between fruit and starch. If it was like an easy shakeout run day, like an hour run, pretty low intensity, I would probably go pretty low carb that day. I'd probably still have a little bit of fruit after the workout, but that would be about it. I'd probably have a low carb dinner. But I also err on the side of a little more protein. So I do what you call, what I like to call carnivore keto, which means erring on a little more protein than the keto protocol calls for. Um, bigger portions of protein because any excess protein that you consume as an endurance athlete will top off glycogen because your body has a metabolic flexibility of converting excess protein in the system through gluconeogenesis will convert that extra protein to glucose without affecting your blood sugar so a lot of my athletes that are kind of pretty low carb eat a decent amount of protein a lot more than's called for by keto got it
0: definitely that's um. Lot to take on. Um, I definitely, I need to learn a little bit more. Uh, one of the other thing, one of the thing I was thinking, like, how do you calculate all those? Especially when you're running middle of the night, you know, 100 mile or hard to calculate.
1: I don't even calculate during a race. I just know that I drink, you know, 125 calories between every aid station, and just carry that powder in, in a pocket. Yeah, put it in like sandwiches. You know, like the the fold-over sandwich bags, the little mm-hmm. ones you can buy in the grocery store, I just put a scoop in that for my bulk powder, and I tie mm-hmm. it overhand knot, and that's a serving. I tear it open, put it into my bottle, and have them top it off water in the aid station. So I always have two bottles or I two see. flasks, and one has calories and one has water. And I always sip them equally. I sip the calories, sip the water, wash away the sugary taste so you don't get taste fatigue. And then I strategically use you know, gels here and there and a little bit of solid food at the tables but i stick to real food fruit potatoes broth super simple
0: definitely yeah that's uh, something i really need to focus on um i would like you to talk about a little bit about training uh you you mentioned many different trainings you do including speed training which uh in a running 100 mile a lot of time we think like there's no no need for speed and you just need endurance go long and go hard and you know go hills and go mountains and and so on. Uh, tell us about the training, the training cycle, and um, uh, your and your training. How how do you train yourself or train your athlete? Uh, let's talk about it a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, as far as um, athletes go, it's very unique to each athlete because you know I kind of take into consideration their their historical endurance training background. So some people are newer to the sport, some people have been doing it for twenty years. So. Everyone can handle different amounts of volume and intensity. Some people can't handle any intensity and they just need to be running aerobic and running conversational pace all their runs because if every time you give them speed work, they get injured. You know, so those kind of people, they need time to let strength training and mobility and other things kind of take hold before they can handle any harder work. If I look back in the history of my training, the first five years, I couldn't handle any speed work. I, I've got to, I would get injured. So, you know, it's all relative and in context, but as far as mine goes, once I kind of got through all those injury phases in, you know, starting in about 05 or 06, 07, I really was able to start adding in speed work after I kind of fixed everything with strength training and some mobility work. You know, my typical training is six days a week of training, one day off. I do my long runs on Fridays. So usually Fridays are a long run. Mondays are a pretty longish run you know, medium distance, long run, sometimes Saturdays if I'm in a big training block. So I'd have a Friday, Saturday block of bigger training. I usually take Sundays off and then I train Monday through Saturday. Most of the time, occasionally I'll take a Saturday off and run Sunday. You know, I kind of play by ear on the weekends with the family because I've got Mm -hmm. three kids and a wife and you know, there's sometimes there's stuff going on on Saturdays and I can't squeeze in a run. And so I'll just wait till Sunday. Usually two, one day a week is some kind of quality. Most weeks, not every week, but You know, I usually give myself an easy week every third week or fourth week, but I do some kind of quality work once a week, sometimes twice a week, depending on the training cycle. If I'm in an active long run build where I'm building the long run every week, I'll do a little like less speed work like once a week. But if I'm in off season where I'm doing kind of just a standard like placeholder long run, two or three hour long run, just to keep it in there, then I'll do a little more speed work coming into the season. Right now, I'm I'm about two and a half weeks out from 100K in Malibu, a Sean O'Brien 100K. So I've been doing a fair amount of speed work. I've been doing big, long runs. You know, I put in an 80, 82-mile week last week with, uh, I don't know, 12 13,000 feet of climbing and some speed work. So last week was a pretty big week. Uh, I'm nearing the end of that. I'm about ready to taper. Starting next week, I taper. So this is kind of my last big weekend this weekend, and then I'm kind of going to shut it down. So um usually taper for about two weeks, you know, about 13 days, 12 to 13 days, depending on the training cycle and what's coming up and how I'm approaching that race. Some races are a little more trainers and others are really like you're really focusing on them. So that kind of gives you like a ballpark. I'm probably like my ballpark mileage is, you know, I live at 7,000 feet, so and I train pretty much 80 to 90 percent plus trails and 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 i train up to about nine to ten eleven thousand feet at times um or from like four thousand feet to seven thousand feet in the winter because we go down to sedona down lower where we can run on dirt and not in snow so it depends on the time of season too on what i'm what what my training ground looks like So that kind of gives you like a a, a kind of smattering. Like right now I'm going to Sedona a lot for long runs because there's no snow down there and I can kind of drop down into the desert and do a good long run. Like I'm going there tomorrow for a long run and uh, it'll be technical, but more runnable type of terrain. You know, I might get 3,000 feet of climbing and a 20 miler.
0: So what is a long run for you for 100K you're training for?
1: My sweet spots have been, my longest run so far, in the buildup for this has been 25 miles, 25 miler with about 5,000 feet of climbing or 5,800 feet of climbing. That was my longest run. That was last Friday, but I kind of did a block. So I did that run. And then I did a a long run, a longer run on Sunday and a long run Mm. on Monday. So I did like 14 on Sunday. So I did 25 easy seven miler shakeout run on Saturday, ran a 14 miler, um, on with some pickup, like with like steady state effort, like a about a 40 minute steady state effort at the end of the workout. And then uh, Monday ran 18, but it kind of gives you like, I did kind of, a yeah. you know, I did 60 plus miles in four days. So I did kind of a, a block and then I took an easy, easy day on, or I took a rest day on Tuesday this week. Cause I'd kind of trained like nine days in a row. And then I took a rest day on Tuesday and then did hill workout on Wednesday easy run today I did a double today because my son's in a, a run club and they only they just run like he runs like two miles it's like <laughs> we're in base building phase right now and he's 10 mm. so we run about 10 minute pace for 10 11 minute pace for we run about nine thirty pace but then we take hike breaks about every three quarters of a mile and we ran like 2.2 miles this evening um, right before dark but I ran a, an easy seven you know, at lunchtime.
0: Definitely. So yeah, I used to do those uh, um, block miles. Um, Sometimes I end up doing like a 30, 40 miles for a hundred mile training. Is that something advisable or in one run I used to do 40 miles, but, but is that something, should I be doing that or, or is it a, Is it a block mile? I like those block miles because then you can be with the family or do other things, and you know, you know, always, you know, you just chop those hours. So
1: I think you have less injury risk to do it in a block training style versus the one big run. I was just having this discussion with one of my athletes on a on a coaching call today. We were kind of discussing the difference between like doing block training and doing a one single longer run. He's new to ultras, and so we decided that we're going to do both. We, we're kind of doing one weekend where we're doing kind of block training. Then we're kind of giving him a recovery week with lower volumes, just one long run. And then the next week we were going to do a, a 30 mile long run because he's still trying to figure out his nutrition. And I feel like, as you know, you can't test your nutrition until you go long. Yeah. You're Cause can to go do four and five hour runs all day long and never have any stomach issues. But once you go seven or eight, you're like, Oh, Oh yeah, this better run doing and you're laughing and I know you you know exactly what I mean, I'm talking I've about. Been there. <laughs> yep. Yeah. you don't know until you go longer and so a lot of times things that might work in a 4 or 5 hour run don't work in an 8 or 9 hour run. So when you go to that 50 mile distance or 100k distance, you know, you're he's getting ready for 50 miler and he's never done 50 miles, so he has no idea whether his whether his nutrition's going to work or not. He knows what he's tried and it's worked so far, but that's only up to about four hours. We're definitely planning that into the training cycle as he builds to this 50 miler just to test his gut to make sure there's no you know, road bumps. I did a lot more longer training runs when I in the early days when I was still trying to figure out my nutrition. Once I figured out kind of my nutritional protocol, I feel like I don't need the 30, 40 milers very often. I'd rather race myself into shape where I, I strategically put carrots of races on the schedule to, as I build up to a bigger race and then get ready. I've run enough hundreds the last few years where I'm running like three or four a year, then I'm always no more than like two months away from running a hundred. So I always have all this like base, big fitness. So I don't feel like I need those long runs, those 30, 40 miles. I'd rather do them in volume blocks. And like you said, it's a lot easier on the family to, you know, I'm not gone the entire day. I might just be gone till noon. On, on a Saturday instead of being gone till five. Definitely.
0: Yeah, one of the um the reason I laugh is because I can do 25 mile no problem. Even when I run races and my wall comes down when I do this 30 plus mile. And I found that out also when I was training. Also, I came with 30 plus mile. I was like, I have to go to that 33 mile or the 35 miles because that's when things start falling apart for me. You know, it happens on the race day. So I always try to get at least one run. Try to figure my nutrition, and try to figure that out. So definitely, that's been an interesting talk. Uh, I know we have gone over, and you have spent so much time with me to talk. Uh, um, so thanks for coming to M Runs Podcast. Before we close, I still want you to give you some words of advice to all the runners out there. Runners that want to be, um, you know, hundred mile or hold that buckle, or or just want to start an ultra. Give us, a, give us a words of advice um, and tell us uh, about the nutrition, training, that aspect of uh, of 100-mile or, or ultra-distance running. Give us a words of advice.
1: No matter where you're coming from, consistency is the most important piece of training versus one specific workout. So I'd rather see my runners, you know, instead of running three days a week, an hour and a half, longer runs and then being a little beat up for a day or two and then getting another run in, I'd rather see them run 30 or 40 minutes every day or, or six days a week and then one long run and build and never build your volume more than 10% 10 to 15% a week. So look at your overall volume of time on feet and figure out what's 10, about 10% of that and don't build more than 10%. Now, if you have 20 years of experience in running, you can build 15 or 20% in sometimes but most people are going to do great on about 10% of volume build a week. So I think first, you, you know, aerobic, aerobic base is King too. So always start with aerobic base. If you've taken time off or you're coming off the couch, you know, spend eight weeks of doing aerobic running, no faster running, mm. just build your volume strategic. Like I said, 10% a week, build it up till you're up to running kind of base mileage. You know, that, that typical protocol of, about an hour hour maintenance runs during the week, and then that one long run a week to build up to it and then build in some volume blocks three, five, and seven weeks out from your target event.
0: That's great awards of advice. Um, before we close this interview, uh, do you still take athlete uh, as a coach? or If anybody wants to contact you, how can they?
1: Um, I, I am, you know, it's the beginning of the season and we're getting pretty full now. I have a couple slots left. I'm kind of getting to the point where I'm about ready to put a note on my website that says full for the season. <laughs> uh, so we are approaching our kind of a uh, max roster at the moment, but we're, we're, we're not quite full. So, you know, I'm usually full by March. So we're working on expanding the business a little bit though, because we've had really good response and I really appreciate all the business out there that people have given me. Um, and I love to share my knowledge and my 22 years of, of experience. So, and how to balance it with life. I know how it is to work and train and have a family and, and try to juggle all those balls in the air. So anyway, yes, we are still taking some athletes right now, but we are nearing maximum capacity for 2022.
0: Definitely. I will uh, put that in our so note, uh, and if anybody interested. So, so definitely, uh, please check Jeff out. Uh
1: website you i always have a note if, if it's if it's full i'll have a note on that
0: what is your website
1: go com. there we go
0: we'll put that on the link as well thanks for coming to emron's podcast and talk to me um we're our 10 minute into it now so <laughs> it's a, so thanks for thanks for coming and uh Hopefully, we'll see you here again in, in Alabama running uh, Blood Rock. We'll make the course harder, even harder next time. I'll make it. <laughs> tell David.
1: <laughs> well, I really I really appreciate, appreciate it, and, I, and thanks for having me on. I always love coming to Alabama. It's always good. Like that Southern hospitality is always alive and well in Birmingham. So take care, and uh, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for your time.